University Fellowship. It's actually the the our denomination's campus ministry. I, I serve at Kansas State University. This is our ninth year on campus, uh, which if you've known me any bit of time, that sounds like a long time, and it is a long time, but we're so thankful for God's work there and his, the, the privilege to minister alongside students and to be in their lives and to shepherd them through those vital years of their lives. I, I get asked lately how the semester has been in light of world events uh, and how things are going. And in, in some ways, it's been really great. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's been really great. Um, last year, many of our students, a quarter to a half of their classes were, were in person at best. Um, a lot of things were done online and hybrid, and it was a pretty rough year for them. This year, it's been interesting to watch us readjust. Almost everything is in person now. There are no social distancing guidelines. We have to wear masks in buildings, and that's it. Um, but it's been interesting to watch students continue to cope with that and sort of be back in person. I asked a, a group of students a while back, what, what it's, what's it been like to be back on campus? And, and the metaphor that one of our students used was really helpful. She said, John, it's like this. It feels like you go gr grocery shopping on Sunday for the whole week, but by Wednesday your food is gone. It's just a lot to bear right now. And that's how she described what it felt like to be on campus. That, that emotionally and, and in, in a lot of different aspects of life, you get ready for your week, but you're just spent by the first few days, and then you're trying to figure out, scrambling to try to figure out the last few days of, of each week. And so I'd love for you to be praying for students and, and the ministry there in, in light of that. The beauty of God's grace, to be honest with you, in the midst of, of that, in the midst of anxiety and stresses that have been there since the beginning of the semester, is that somehow, by the working of God, students are seeing their need more and more for fellowship, for time in the Word, time together, and it's been a blessing to see that happen before, before our eyes, things that I, I couldn't have planned or I couldn't have manipulated to happen, and God has been at work, and we are so thankful for that. So I'd invite you to continue to pray for the work there. Uh, it's my privilege this morning to open God's Word with you, and so I invite you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to consider verses 7 through 13. I believe there's a handout in the middle of your bulletin that has the entire text printed there for you. I'd invite you either to have your Bible, have somehow have the Word of God before you as we consider these things. Ephesians is an interesting book um, in the New Testament. Like many of the, like most of the New Testament, it is, it is a letter, actually, written by a man named Paul to, to a gathering to the church in Ephesus, to a gathering of Christians in Ephesus. In fact, Paul was the one who first preached the gospel there. But unlike much of, the new, much of the letters that he wrote, there doesn't seem to be a specific problem or issue or set of questions that he's addressing. I want you to think of the book of Ephesians like this as we get ready to dive into chapter 3. Think of Ephesians a little bit like a, a map or an atlas in your car. When I was growing up, my family and I road tripped from Wisconsin to, the North, Carol to North Carolina every summer. It took two days, to, two days there, stayed there for a couple weeks and went back. All my extended family was down in North Carolina. And my brothers and I were fascinated by the atlas. If you don't know what an atlas is, an atlas is this book of maps. And, and ours was a pretty good size. It was the Rand McNally size. It was a pretty big size book. And so each, each, each basically, when you open it up, a state covered two pages for the most part. And you could follow along the highway, the interstates and the roads that you're traveling on. And we figured out with my dad's help, like how to read the different, the little numbers and the different colored numbers and the, you know, learning about the mile markers and the exit numbers and all that. To, and what that allowed us to do was to figure out where we were on this map. Nowadays, we probably don't use maps, right? Because we, we have something in our, in our pockets that we can just whip out and say, I need to get here 
tell me how to get there. And when you do that, the beauty of it is, because people like me, even this morning, needed it desperately, is that I don't have to think about where I'm going. It just tells me. Like, it just says, take this right turn right here. Oh, you missed it. Come back, circle around, and take this, this turn right here. And take this left turn here, and you've arrived at your destination. But the map doesn't do that for us. It doesn't simply tell us what the next thing is. It gives us the big picture. And that's how the book of Ephesians works. The book of Ephesians, in many ways, is a, it's a map of God's saving work in the world. In, in the first chapter, he says this. He says, Paul uses the phrase, before the foundation of the world, in verse 4. His starting point to consider the saving work of God is to look before anything was when only God existed. That's his starting point. That's how far back he goes. That's how big the big pictures that he gives us. And then later in, the, in chapter 1, he says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's going way back in time. He's looking down on the earth and seeing where we are now. And he's looking up and he says, everything that exists now, consider these things. That's how big his map is. Then later in chapter 3, he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He's looking forward into eternity as well. That's the, that's the size of the map that Paul wants to, to give us, to see the magnitude of the saving work of God. And in the midst of that, what he does over and over again is he says, this is, the, this is God's saving work, and here is where you are right now. In your relationships, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your work, in your rest, in your play, every part of life, this is where you are. And that's what he does throughout the book of Ephesians. But when we get to chapter 3, the interesting thing that Paul does here is he says this. He says not only where we are and where you as a church are, but he, he, he identifies himself on that map as well. And he says, this is where I am. And this is where my ministry to you fits. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. So here now, as we read from God's holy word, as I read from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through, him, through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we consider these things? Father, we just heard these notes played. But the reminder this morning is that we need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Father, that is what we bring to you this morning. As much as we may want to pretend that we have a lot to offer you this morning, we probably don't. And in fact, eternally speaking, we have the smallest amount to bring to you. And yet, by your grace and by your mercy, by your pursuit of us, your son died for us. And it's by his blood that we can approach you with great confidence and with great freedom this morning. And so we ask that you would send out your light and your truth 
they would lead us and guide us and take us to the place where you are. That we, your people, would hear you, would see you, would know you through your word this morning. And indeed, that we might be changed. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. Amen. I wonder if you're familiar with the Toy Story movies. It's a, it's a, it's a collection of movies that, that, that were created a number of years ago by, by Disney's Pixar. And, and they, create this, they, they paint this picture of this, this great little world within a world. It's a story of, of a collection of toys that belong to this little boy. And it's fascinating because what happens is when the humans aren't around, the toys come to life. And they have this, this whole little organized life together. Woody, the, the cowboy, is sort of the, the de facto leader. I think he's been there the longest, and he's sort of the favorite toy. But all the other toys kind of know their place in the world, and, and they, they have their adventures together. And then as soon as the kid walks in the room, everybody kind of drops and, and lies, lies still so that he might, so that he, they wouldn't know. Well, in the first movie, in, in Toy Story itself, we meet a new toy. His name is Buzz Lightyear. And what's fascinating is all the toys, you know, don't quite know what to do with this new thing, this new one that's in their midst. They're trying to figure out where he fits and how they fit with him. He's got wings and a laser and everything. And as they talk, Woody says, the, the, the de facto leader says, well, he's not really a space ranger. He just thinks he's a space ranger. And Buzz shows off his wings. He clicks a button and his wings like pop up in the back and the toys are like, oh my goodness, look at that. He's got wings and he's got a laser and he's got a light. And Woody responds, those are plastic. He can't fly. And Buzz, in all his bravado, says, they're terulium carbon carbonic alloy, and I can fly. And Buzz goes on to, to, to let me show you how I can fly. And so he jumps up in the air, and he bounces on this ball, and he goes down this track that gets him up into the air with, with, with the acceleration going down the track. And he ends up in the, the, the ceiling fan, and he spins around. And he does a number of tricks and all these flips and twirls and all these great things. And he lands before the toys, and they're all astounded. He really can fly. This is amazing. This is a game changer for us. And Woody turns to him and says, that wasn't flying, that was falling with style. It's this great picture for us of the tensions that, that you may feel in the Christian life. There are days when you get out of bed and you think, I've got this day by the horns and I'm, I'm ready to go. I feel confident, I'm, I'm excited, and I'm ready to face the day before me. You feel like the space ranger before all those toys saying, I can fly for sure. But there are other days when getting out of bed is hard, when doing your job is hard, when loving your spouse is hard, when loving your children is hard, when loving your parents is hard. And, and you may feel like as much as you think you can fly, the reality may tell you, I'm just falling with style. I'm not really flying. It's that tension that we feel. It's a tension you may even feel as a church. There are days when, when you feel like God is at work and lives are being changed and good things are happening and we can see it clearly and we're thankful for that. And there are other days where you feel like, does anybody even hear me? Does anyone see me? Does anybody understand what I'm going through? And you struggle and you feel lost. We know those realities, don't we? I'm feeling both the confidence and the opposite of confidence. It's interesting, in, in light of that, if you look at verse 13, where, where this passage ends, where the Apostle Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's a simple phrase there, I ask you not to lose heart. You see, Paul is writing from prison, and whatever your conceptions or misconceptions about modern day, or model, the modern day prison environment is, let me 
tell you it was most likely far worse for the Apostle Paul and what he experienced. The Ephesians had heard the gospel through them. Their lives had literally been changed. Their economy had been changed because of the preaching of the resurrected Christ in their midst. And yet now they learn that the one that they, that they heard this gospel from is in prison. Surely that feels like failure. Surely that feels like, was his message even true if he's now in prison? How could his God, how could our God, let that happen to him? But his message to them is, do not lose heart. The challenge of the Christian life, in part, is to live honestly with our limitations, with our weaknesses, and even with our sin. And yet also cling to this hope of our calling as God's people, this glorious, beautiful hope. He ends the passage, in fact, at the end of verse 13, which is your glory. I want to wrestle together with how we cling to those realities together this morning. The first thing I want you to see as we walk through this passage together is that the foundation of the church, by Paul's declaration and example here, the foundation of our existence as the gathered people of God, yes, even you, Christ the Redeemer, Lee Summit, this morning, is God's grace itself. The foundation of our life together is, as his people, is his kindness, his undeserved favor, his patience with us. And I see that in the text because Paul, Paul the one who preached the gospel, who started church after church after church and city after city throughout the region, declares that to be his own experience. Look again with me at verses 7 and 8 and, and hear how Paul, first of all, describes his need. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, to, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. You see, the Apostle Paul wants us to, to be unashamed and to know his need. In fact, what Paul's acknowledging is that it took the very working of God's power to change his life. It wasn't a, a mere U-turn, it wasn't a mere altering direction, it wasn't a mere self, a program of self-improvement. It was the working of, of God's power that changed his life. Notice how he describes himself. He, he's less than the least. He's, he's saying, I'm worse than, I'm inferior to, I'm less than even the lowest, and yet God was gracious to me. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it this way. He says, I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, the apostle, this great leader, he wrote like half the New Testament, is saying, I don't deserve anything that I've been given because my mission in life used to be to destroy the very church that, I've, that I'm seeking to build now. He never lost sight of that reality, never lost sight of the reality that he sought out of his zeal for God to crush the church. First Timothy, he says it this way. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. His plea is his need. That's what's on display for us as his church. That we, as a gathered people of God, are no less or no greater than that. We are sinners. We have this need. But we're gathered by the grace of God. 
Notice where he continues on in verse 8 and into verse 9. He not only puts on display his need as a sign of God's grace working in him, but he also sees God's grace working in him, through, working through him as he, as, with the task that God has given him. Again, I turn your attention back to verse 8. To me, uh, all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. You see, what Paul sees as his task is to preach to the Gentiles, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of Christ, the bounty that knows no end. It knows no beginning and no end. There's no way we could ever get to the bottom of it. That's how great his task is by the grace of God working through him. In Colossians 1, he says the same thing a little bit more clearly. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Son of God in you, the hope of glory, is the message that he proclaims. This is the grace of God working through this sinful man. And it's what's before us. Now when he uses this word mystery, don't think about it as a secret. You see, in the first century, what, what was happening was that there were a number of pagan religions that we kind of we tagline with as mystery religions. Because at the heart of the, these, these belief systems, it was sort of like they had a secret club that had a secret handshake and all these secret rules that nobody really knew about. And, and if you were inducted into the club, you were seen as in and everybody else was out. Now the, the, the funny, so to speak, thing about these mystery religions was for most of the people, even in the club, they didn't really know the secrets that, that were promised them. But they had the secret handshake and so they were part of the club and everything was okay for them. Do you hear what Paul is saying though? You see, he's co-opting this language of the pagan religions and saying, you wanna talk about mystery? I want to talk about mystery, but it's not a mystery that nobody knows about. It's not a mystery that's hidden. It's a mystery that has been made known, that I'm proclaiming it to all who would hear. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What else could explain it but the very grace of God? The undeserved favor and kindness of the eternal God through Jesus, applied to us by his spirit. We are made his, and he is in us, at work in us, changing us and shaping even our very hearts. God's grace at work in us and God's grace at work through us. Writer Stephen King once wrote about an interaction he had with one of the, one of his, with the very religious mothers of one of his classmates. This mom had hired him to come and move some things, move some furniture in, in their home. And when he, got to the, when he got to the home, he walked into the main room. And on the wall was this giant picture of the crucified Jesus. Now, as far as I know, Stephen King would not claim faith and he would not consider himself a follower of Jesus. But when he walked into that room, he couldn't help but stare for a moment at this, at this picture of the crucifixion. You see, it included every detail possible to highlight the brutal suffering and shame that Jesus endured. And he said that it was overwhelming for him to behold. And, and the mom, who it was, it was her painting, she was highly religious. She saw him looking at it and said, that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Have you been saved, Steve? And he quickly responded that he was as saved as saved could be. But then he honestly wrote later that he didn't think you could ever be, be he didn't think he could ever be good enough to brave that to have that version of Jesus intervene on his behalf. 
He said, you see, it, you see it on his face. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving mood. What an interesting thought. Then he looks at the crucified Savior bearing the sins of the world for the people of God. Bearing our sin. And that's his response. That he could never be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on his behalf. You see, that's where we need the grace of God the most. Because grace meets us in a place where we think we have to be a certain amount of good in order to be saved. And we realize that we will never be that certain amount of good to be saved. That's the very nature of the grace of God. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough for it. And that's what Paul is saying. Beloved, you have this same need. And if you are a Christian, know that to profess to be a Christian is to acknowledge two basic things. You are a sinner, and Jesus is enough of a Savior for you. That's at the heart of the gospel. That's at the heart of Christianity. That the Son of God lived, died, and rose again. And that all who look to him by faith are saved eternally. Secure in the hand of their Savior, in the hand of God. We are a people of, of grace. We are gathered by grace. Now think for a moment about what that means for us. As, as one student said a number of years ago, John, maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we sin against one another. Exactly. Maybe we don't need to be surprised when we frustrate one another, when, when we disagree with parenting styles, and the way we spend our money, and the, way, the, way, the, the songs that we sing, even the way we do things as a church body. Maybe we don't need to be surprised by that factor. Let's not let it throw us off course. Well, let's acknowledge together, we are sinful people. We will harm one another. We will say words inadvertently that will hurt, as I have done repeatedly. Let's not be surprised by that reality. Let's cling to our Savior together because we are a people of grace in need of grace. But also, there's a place to find comfort that even as sinful, flawed, weak people, we have the task of making this gospel known to one another, of ministering to one another. That in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our fear, we can step towards one another and say things like, I don't know what to say to you because you just lost a child but I'm here for you. We have that freedom to grieve even when we don't know what to say or what to do, to move towards one another, to offer what we can offer. You will do that in awkward ways, and it will be weird, and it may not always work. But hear me, this is the task because we are a people of grace. This is what is before us. Don't miss the reality that grace can actually drive you to one another, even in your need and everyone else's need. This is the work of God. We are gathered by grace. But the apostle doesn't stop there. He also wants us to know that not only are we gathered by grace, we are gathered for the glory of God. His encouragement doesn't stop with the thought of God's power and work to save his people. He wants us to see something more, especially in our discouragement. Look again at verse 10. And know what, this, what the glory that, that is set before us. He says that all of this is the case so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through you, Christ the Redeemer, Lee Summit, 
however frail you may feel this morning, through you, the wisdom of God is being made known. That is the glory to which we are called as his people gathered in his name. Glory being revealed. What does he mean here when he, when he talks about made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Now, I'll tell you up front, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I want to point you to what we do see in the text because it's still enough to be helpful. You see, the, the question is, what does he mean by rulers and authorities? Some people see that as like names for like political rulers and, and leaders in this world. I don't think that's what he's saying because he uses that phrase in heavenly places. Other people see it as some sort of ideology or, or systems of thought that govern our lives. That may be closer to what it is, but, but notice something. In chapter 1 of, of Ephesians, he says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says he, that Jesus is seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this, this phrase, in the heavenly places, speaks to where God is and where Jesus is, ruling over all things. It's the unseen world, the place that, that they are that we cannot see. But then in chapter 2, he says that we have been, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So somehow, by the working and the power and the spirit of God, we are in essence with them there as well, even now, though our bodies are here. We are united to Christ and, and there. But then at the end of the book, in chapter 6, he says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think what he's saying there is that these rulers and authorities are at work in our world under the sovereignty of God, but they're in this unseen realm that we, can, we cannot see. Okay, there's redundancy, sorry. In this place that we cannot see, and they're at work trying to thwart the promises of God and the purposes of God in his world. And yet, even those creatures that if we were to try, if we were somehow able to behold them, we would be terrified. Even those things, we are on display to show them the unhindered wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God, the beauty of God's working and the power of his will through even our failures. It's all on display for those beings to see. As if, God's, as if God is saying to his enemies and to our enemies, you think you know what you're doing. You think you have this figured out. Let me show you Christ the Redeemer in Lee Summit. And in her, you will see my wisdom being worked out in ways that you could not even begin to imagine. That is glory that we are partakers of. The very wisdom of God through Yes, even us this morning. But there's something else. Not only is, is knowing the wisdom of God part of this, this glory to which we're called, but look again at verse 12. He says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Again, th think about what the enemies of God would say. That's your army? That's who you want on your side? And God says, yes, and I give them access to me that you don't have. They can approach me with confidence in ways that you cannot because they are mine. We have this boldness and access before God. This is what is before us. 
know if you remember the movie Anna and the King. It was a sort of a, a more, more modern version of the, the musical, the well-known musical The King and I, where the king of Siam brings the teacher um, from, from Great Britain in, in to, to educate his children because he wants his children educated in the Western world. And what's fascinating is, as the movie go, go, goes on to, to see kind of the, what's, what's at stake here. You see, because the king is seen as divine. He, he's seen as, as basically God among his people. And so none of his, his counselors or advisors are allowed to have their head the same height as him. So he's on a raised platform like this with his throne. And, and even when he gets down low, they all have to hit the ground because they can't have this head, this, their, their heads the same height as his. And the other interesting piece that happens is women were not allowed in his presence, but he brought this female teacher to teach his children. And so throughout the movie, they call her Sir as a way of saying, we're going to name her something different and pretend that it's, it's really a man, so we're going to call her Sir. And there's this great scene where all of his counselors are meeting before him, and he's standing on the ground, and they're all bowed down on the floor with their heads in the dirt because that's how you treat their God. But one of his children had a problem and runs down the, aisle, the, the main aisle. And all his counselors are there, and this child runs up to him and runs up into his arms. And he, he embraces him and picks him up, and he says, what's wrong? What's wrong? None of the counselors or leaders of the kingdom have that access to him. But his child does. And that's what's before us with our Father in heaven. That's the access that, that God gives to us, his people, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. We have this access. This is part of the glory of what it means to be a part of his church that is before us. Beloved, I want you to know that God's wisdom is on display through you this morning. God's perfect will is on display through you, even in your sin, because God's mercy is greater even than your sin. It is enough for you. It is enough. There's nothing you could add to it. There's nothing you need to add to it because there's, there's nothing that will accomplish what it has already accomplished for you. You have access to the Father. This is part of your glory. The challenge, of course, to see grace and glory side by side is, is to understand that we need to hold on to both of these things together. You see, if, if, we, if, we, only, if we only hold on to like our, our faulty version of grace that basically makes us think that, that we just have to think, we just have to grovel and think about how bad we are, then we miss grace and glory altogether. And if all we see is glory, if all we see is, is this triumphant picture of the church, we don't acknowledge our sinfulness and our weakness and our need, that's hubris, that's pride, that's arrogance. We're called to cling to this, to see our need, and to see this, the glorious calling of God through us, his people. But this is the way God works, isn't it? Because the Bible is, is full of pictures of, of sinners doing amazing things. Because really, it's a picture of God doing amazing things through sinful people. A few weeks ago, I, I happened to be reading this, this text from 1 Samuel 22. David is the king. He's on the run. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. And he ends up in this cave. And I want to read this to you. From, it's from 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, David escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. Now listen to who was there. This is the king, the one called the man after God's own heart, the one that God has set up to lead his people. It says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Did you hear that? In distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. 
That was the army that God had gathered around the king. If you're bitter in soul this morning, maybe you belong. If you're in debt, maybe you belong. If you're in distress, maybe you belong here as a part of the wisdom of God on display through you. It's what the whole Bible tells us, right? We think about Noah, who God used to preserve life on this planet. And what did he do right afterwards? He had way too much to drink and made a fool out of himself. We think about Abraham and Sarah. When God said, I know you're old, but I'm going to give you a child, and you're going to be the, the parents of the, of the father. Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. And they laughed at God. They had the nerve to laugh at God. And God was persistent and provided for them. We think about Gideon, this guy who was, who was cowering in fear because of the Midianites. And God greets him and says, I'm going to lead my people to victory through you. And then when God gives him an army, he says, no, that's too big of an army for you, Gideon. We're going to make it smaller, make it smaller, make it smaller. So you have just a few hundred. And by the way, you're not going to have weapons. You're going to have jars and you're going to eat trumpets and you're going to have fire and you're going to yell. And that's going to win the war for you, by the way. We have Samson who couldn't control his urges to save his life. And on and on and on and on and on. These are the people that God gathers by his grace to put his glory on display. Could he not do that? Is he not doing that through you and through me and through us? So that you might rejoice in knowing the wisdom of God. You have access to God. God's grace is at work in you and God's grace is at work through you. Beloved, you were gathered by grace and gathered for glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would see our need, and in seeing our need, we would rejoice in your provision. I pray that as your people, you would bless this congregation in such a way that your glory would be undoubtedly on display, as it already is now, through your provision for them. We need you to move, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.